But nonetheless, there were a set of rules that were drafted and were put in front of the, the membership, the school. I say the membership, I mean the universities, who are the ones who vote on all of this. And it was ready in December of 19, and it got pulled off the table in January of 20 when it was going to be voted on by all the schools, mostly because of intervention from the Department of Justice. This is more than you want to know. But... But I would have loved to have just shoved that through anyway. It would have created, doubtlessly, lawsuits and some other complexity, but at least we would have had a template on the table nationally, and then we could have dealt with it better. But, you know, at the time when the Department of Justice says stop, you, you know, orange is a great color, but not as a jumpsuit. <laughs> and, and so when DOJ says, yeah, no, that's not a good idea, you tend to say, not a good idea. What was the DOJ's major concern there? Yeah, it was around antitrust issues and, and whether or not the rules that were being put in place, that have ever been put in place by the schools, those are NCA rules, when the schools put them in place, were they engaged in an activity that was an inherent antitrust activity that was restricting behavior on campuses from doing things that they should otherwise be allowed to do to restrict competition. And and the DOJ at that time, they've looked at a lot of things around college sports over the years, over the decades. And at that time they said, we're concerned about the transfer rules because they thought the transfer rules were too restrictive, potentially. And they said, and we're concerned about whatever it is you're, you're doing around name, image, and likeness. Now at this point, we didn't have any, there was nothing on the table. It was just a conversation, but they had said, whatever you do, we want to know about it. We want to be involved in this. So, you know, come talk to us. And, and that's what slammed the brakes on. They didn't launch an investigation that we're aware of. They didn't weigh in the end, but they wanted to, to basically oversee it. And it reminds me of, God, what was that? Was that in December or January when they had a meeting to adopt the transfer rules and name and image and likeness rules? They were going a certain direction, and you know, this is a matter of public record now. Uh, I had written a letter in, to Dr. Emmert and saying that you know the antitrust division uh, is concerned about some of the changes. Make sure you guys change it consistent with the antitrust laws. That was largely it. And the transfer rules were frankly long overdue uh, about some of the changes, some of the restrictions they put on schools for student athletes to transfer after a year or two. They have to go seek permission before they even go engage in a, in a school they want to transfer to their coach and their team. And it's just offensive restrictions that shouldn't exist. But they delayed it, saying, oh, they delayed it because of the Justice Department's concerns. And that just wasn't true. They were planning on delaying it because the Supreme Court granted cert on the Alston case. So they thought they're going to get a shot, a free shot into the goal, so to speak, and get some kind of an antitrust immunity. And therefore, they don't have to make any changes to NIL or this. I think they miscalculated. That's just not, I don't think that shows leadership and to do the right thing. And here they needed to do the right thing. I hope that they go ahead and do it rather than spend money and continue to fight these legal battles on multiple fronts. And it is very important that you all get this right. Fair, consistent, transparent. Mr. Emmert, you say that is your priorities, but I have to tell you, I was really disappointed with our meeting last week. And I think we're looking at a time when the NCAA has failed when it comes to women in sports, 
uh, sexual harassment, uh, sexual assault, sexual abuse that has occurred. And I, I think a question that must be going through a lot of minds of student athletes and their parents is how in the world are they going to be able to trust you to get this right? So my question to you is simply this. Do you think it is time to call your leadership of the organization into question? Do you think you are still capable and fit to lead this organization to make a decision that is going to be fair to the student athletes and their parents? Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Today is September 16th, 2022, and in today's episode, I'm going to talk about a surreal interview that Mark Emmert gave last Friday, September 9th, to a class at the University of Florida taught by Christy Dosh, who writes, speaks, and teaches on the business of college sports. And I believe this class was a name, image, and likeness class. I'm not sure if it was an undergraduate class or a law school class, but uh, Ms. Dosh is an attorney. And Emmert came on and spoke for maybe an hour and 20 minutes. And Emmert's comments were just breathtaking, even for Mark Emmert. I'm going to talk in just a minute about the opening montage and the importance of those comments. But when I learned about this interview, uh, a friend of mine sent it to me earlier in the week and I listened to it and my initial reaction was just whiskey tango foxtrot and then I listened to it again and so much of it was internally inconsistent some of it was simply incoherent and it wasn't quite clear what Emmert was trying to accomplish so I made a transcript of the interview and then I really parsed through that transcript and I think I have a sense of what Emmert was trying to accomplish. I'm not sure he did it, but it really falls in line with the NCAA's ongoing campaign since the beginning of 2019 when it went on offense to eliminate the athletes' rights movement. And when I learned about the interview, one of my first questions is, why is Emmert giving this interview in this forum? Because almost every public appearance that Mark Emmert has made really since he started to get some heat in 2020 and 2021 for his failed leadership. His pressers and his interviews have been very carefully managed by the NCAA spin doctors. The NCAA, and particularly now the Power Five, who is really in control of the voluntary regulation of college sports after this constitutional makeover, they don't want Mark Emmert speaking. They want him just tucked away in a closet. And Emmert tries to uh, make the case that he's speaking only in his individual capacity. And it's really interesting how he weaves that in over the course of the interview. But the fact of the matter is, he is still the NCAA president. He still occupies that seat. He's still drawing his NCAA salary. And I'll just note the irony of the timing of this interview, because on the same day that Emmert gave this interview last Friday, the NCAA published on its website at the end of the day, it was kind of a Friday dump, that's how I interpreted it, but they published the job 
job description for the new NCAA president because Mark Emmert was essentially forced to announce his resignation. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute as well. But the job description for the NCAA president that was put together by this turnkey ZRG search firm that operates in the entertainment space, not the higher education space. But that job description is really interesting. And I was laughing to myself. And I read this before I heard this interview, but I I was just laughing to myself. It sounded to me like there were portions of that job description that were written specifically to be the opposite of what Mark Emmert was. And what we heard in this interview is just perfect proof of the need for new leadership. And I guess I also should say this before I get into the true context of Emmert's comments here, that when he gets the opportunity to just speak free form, it's almost impossible to follow. And this is a very tough interview. And I really don't have any idea of how Ms. Dosh sees these issues, whether she sees them through an athlete's rights lens. But given the manner in which Emmert was just throwing stuff on the wall, it would have taken hours to to try to make sense of it and tease it out through focused questioning. You just can't do that. Got a sense of how Emmert operates in that environment when I was reviewing portions of his trial testimony in the O'Bannon case. It was just frustrating to read it. When I'm a former litigator and I've cross-examined many witnesses, and I have dealt with witnesses like Emmert, who are just hell-bent on obfuscation, misdirection, confusing narratives, that it's really a challenge. And of course, you know, this wasn't a, a deposition or a trial. But in this type of engagement with someone like Emmert, you just, you let him speak and then on the backside, you try to make sense of it. But I need to go through some history here in a bit of detail to really set the stage for the importance of what Emmert had to say and how all of these events, really going back to 2019, have brought the NCAA to a position in 2022 where they are having to take a new look at their playbook to get what they want right now. That opening quote from Emmert in the opening montage tried to describe, Emmert was trying to describe these events going back to the California Fair Pay to Play Act and the beginning of name, image, and likeness. And then he had his version of history and brought it through to January of 2021. And then he just leaps over to the Austin case. And boy, is that a convenient history and fundamentally at odds with the true context of the NCAA's behavior in that crucial period of time. So I'm going to go through that right now and then connect it back to the montage and use that as a template for analyzing what Emmert was trying to do in this interview last Friday. But this saga actually begins in 2009 with the filing of the O'Bannon suit. And that was a watershed event in athletes' rights. And it was an antitrust suit challenging the NCAA's compensation limits on name, image, and likeness. And that lawsuit really put the heat on the NCAA. And they, along with the Power Five, were very, very nervous 
about the outcome of that suit. And in the final analysis, it turned out to be really a mixed bag and in many ways was as favorable to the NCAA as it was to the athletes. But the athletes wanted a meaningful remedy for the NCAA's misappropriation of their name, image, and likeness. And they wanted their nil rights protected going forward. They really didn't get that out of O'Bannon. All they got, I say all, I mean, it was important, but what they got was the full cost of attendance scholarship, this additional stipend to cover the full cost of attending college, which the NCAA had refused to provide and had really drawn a line in the sand in back to 2006 when an athlete sued the NCAA again under antitrust laws in the White case, claiming that the scholarship limit set below the full cost of attendance violated antitrust laws. The NCAA settled that case, and then they roll into O'Bannon, militantly opposing the full cost of attendance scholarship and also any name, image, and likeness compensation. They spent $140 million in that O'Bannon case to uh, prevent the athletes from getting any nil compensation. But the district court uh, awarded the full cost of attendance scholarship. Then the Ninth Circuit upheld that portion of the district court's decision. And the athletes weren't happy with that. They felt like they got screwed, quite frankly. So on the backside of O'Bannon, which really ended, it wasn't fully over until 2018. The attorney's fees litigation lingered on until 2018 because the NCAA just couldn't let anything go. They litigated and relitigated and over-litigated that case to the bitter end. And they were doing it all on the dime of men's basketball players. All those fees, all those legal fees, the NCAA's fees, there was a $40 million settlement component, and then the athletes' attorneys' fees all paid from revenue from March Madness. So the very athletes who were suing the NCAA were having their money used to fund all of these legal expenses. It's just unconscionable. But on the backside of that, the California legislature stepped in and said, wait a minute, we're going to do something here. We're going to get these athletes some meaningful name, image, and likeness benefits that they were denied in O'Bannon. And so the California legislature in 2019 had on the table the Fair Pay to Play Act, SB 206, which was a pretty straightforward and actually an elegant uh, name, image, and likeness law. It was very simple, and it allowed athletes in the state of California to to get name, image, and likeness benefits. The state law can, was in direct conflict with the NCAA's limitations on name, image, and likeness as expressed in bylaw 12.5. And it said that athletes in the state of California could receive name, image, and likeness compensation. It had to come from third parties, and it couldn't be outright pay for play because of that limitation. And it wasn't set to go into effect until 2023. So there was a four-year window. And in that law, the California legislature explicitly said at the very beginning of that law in the preamble that its intent was to put that 2023 date out there down the road so that the NCAA could make good on its promise to change its own rules to allow athletes to participate in a name, image, and likeness market. And so the California legislature stepped in and really pressed the envelope. And the NCAA's initial response to that was an up yours to the state of California. And Mark Emmert drafted a letter that basically threatened to uh, sue the state of California. And then apparently at some point around the time of the passage of that law, the antitrust division of the Justice Department was talking to the NCAA about the NCAA's suggestion that it may also impose a boycott 
on schools in the state of California if the law went into effect and if schools were providing name, image, and likeness opportunities under the California law. And that obviously has antitrust implications. So the antitrust division was, I think, saying to the NCAA, you better be careful with that remedy. And that would be an, a voluntary action through a voluntary enforcement through the NCAA's National Office and its infractions and enforcement team. And it just stinks from an antitrust standpoint. So the NCAA was exploring its options and public opinion was starting to turn against the NCAA. So the NCAA formed this Board of Governors Federal and State Legislation Working Group to look at name, image, and likeness. And their charge was not initially to jump headfirst into trying to provide name, image, and likeness benefits and change their rules, it was to decide whether they should maintain their militant opposition to name, image, and likeness or whether they should look at changing those rules. And it was then that I argue the NCAA put together a cynical, dark strategy to basically end the athletes' rights movement. So they put together this presidential subcommittee on congressional action under the flag of this working group that uh, wasn't disclosed until the final report was released in April of 2020. And they were looking at getting three extraordinary federal protections and immunities that, if granted, would have put the NCAA on the iron throne of college sports regulation, and they would have been untouchable. And those three things were, first, the federal preemption of state laws that relate in any way to any NCAA-imposed compensation limit, including name, image, and likeness. So if they had gotten the preemption of state laws, that California law would be null and void as soon as that preemption provision was signed into law. The second thing that they asked for was absolute antitrust immunity. The reason they wanted that was to eliminate federal courts as potential external regulators. Preemption would have eliminated state legislatures as potential external regulators. And antitrust immunity if it were granted, and they were asking for retroactive antitrust immunity, so that any suits that were then pending, which would have included Austin and then this House suit and then the Johnson suit that's in the Third Circuit, if the NCAA had gotten a congressional antitrust immunity, all those lawsuits would have disappeared with the stroke of a pen. And then the third component of this knockout punch was a provision under federal law that athletes could not be employees of their universities. And that would then take off the table any possibility that athletes could have the protections of workers' compensation laws or labor laws, federal or state. So there would be no pathway for athletes to organize with the protections of federal law to form a union and force the NCAA to grant them a seat at the table to talk about some of the most important issues from the standpoint of the athletes whose labors underwrite the entire sports industrial complex. So through the work of this federal and state legislation working group, which put out an interim report on October 23rd of 2019, and then the Board of Governors issued a grandiose press release on October 29th of 2019 saying, hooray, hooray, we're going to make this happen. The NCAA led all stakeholders to believe that it was serious about changing its rules to permit a nil compensation. In its October 29th statement, the Board of Governors put a January 2021 timeframe 
for the NCAA to adopt its new rules on name, image, and likeness. So they promised all stakeholders that as of January of 2021, the NCAA would have new rules in place that would allow NCAA athletes to make money from their name, image, and likeness. To this day, the NCAA hasn't changed a single word of a single rule of Bylaw 12.5, which places an absolute prohibition on name, image, and likeness compensation. I have argued that the promise of name, image, and likeness compensation was nothing more than a Trojan horse, an opportunity for the NCAA and the Power Five to get in front of Congress and have a plausible reason to ask for these federal protections and immunities. You just can't walk into Congress without a plausible justification and say, hey, I want to be relieved of the, the impact of state regulation. I want to be relieved of compliance with federal free competition laws. I don't want to have to treat my employees as employees. I just want to have a federal declaration that they can't be employees. You just can't walk in and ask for those things. There has to be a reason. And the reason was name, image, and likeness. And it was a brilliant tactic crafted, I believe, by the NCAA's brilliant lawyers and their brilliant public relations team and their brilliant lobbyists. All of those forces, those powerful forces working together to come up with a grand strategy to nip all of these athletes' rights issues in the bud and place the NCAA on the iron throne of college sports regulation. That's what this was all about. And there was going to be no negotiation. The NCAA was just going to steamroll this through Congress, a Republican-controlled Congress. And that's so important because all of the NCAA-friendly bills ran through Republican senators, starting with Marco Rubio with a, an absurd bill he put out in June of 20. 20. And then you had Roger Wicker getting involved. I'm going to talk a little bit more about him in a second. And then Jerry Moran, a Republican from Kansas. Wicker's a Republican from Mississippi. Moran put together a bill he put out in uh, 2021. All three of those bills have one thing in common. They contain all three of these federal protections and immunities that, if granted, would have given the NCAA the authority to do nothing on name, image, and likeness or any other restriction on athlete compensation and benefits. They would have been absolutely immune from any legal consequences for any of their rulemaking. And that's what they wanted. And that's what they still want. Unfortunately for the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, but fortunately for the athletes, Mark Emmert was such a liability in his interaction with Congress that the people who should have been able to help Mark Emmert, like Marsha Blackburn, and she was in that opening montage. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute here. He alienated those people in a way that was just uh, difficult to wrap your head around. And it was all about Emmert's ego, and that was on full display in this interview. So the Power Five came in. You know, the NCAA had been taking the charge on this campaign in Congress, and all of the lobbyist fees, all the lawyers' fees were being paid from March Madness money from elite men's basketball players, the overwhelming majority of whom are African-American. They were literally funding the weapons that were being used against them by the NCAA in this three-part campaign to just deal a death blow to the athletes' rights movement. But the Power Five came in in May of 2020, and they sent a joint letter to both 
chambers of Congress saying, we need to get these protections. We need it now. And the NCAA is not moving fast enough. Time is of the essence. Time is of the essence. And they were looking at the clock because the midterm elections were coming up in November. And the NCAA and the Power Five needed their Republican-controlled Senate. And it was interesting and ironic that this process started in the Senate, not in the House, because the House was controlled by the Democrats. This was clearly a partisan issue. I don't think most political prognosticators were thinking that the Democrats were going to take control of the Senate in the 2020 elections, but the Power Five, uh, smartly, didn't want to leave that to chance. So they were trying to press the gas on this thing, and it just didn't happen. One of the main reasons it didn't happen is because Mark Emmert had just pissed off so many people in Congress that they just were looking at the NCAA with a healthy dose of skepticism. And it's also important to note that while the NCAA was seeking antitrust immunity in Congress, it was also seeking an antitrust immunity in the Austin litigation. And that's the reason that the NCAA, not the athletes, appealed that case to the United States Supreme Court. The antitrust immunity the NCAA was seeking in Austin would have been broader than any antitrust immunity that it was likely to get from Congress. There was some skepticism, even on the Republican side, about the antitrust immunity. And what the NCAA was asking for was not limited to name, image, and likeness. And that's so important. These three things they were asking for were not tied to name, image, and likeness. They were as broad as they could possibly be and would have given the NCAA absolute protection for any of its eligibility rules or compensation limits. And as the NCAA and Power Five were in their blitzkrieg assault in the Senate, a few senators, notably Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut, Cory Booker from New Jersey, and I think Kristen Gillibrand from New York, and then Brian Schatz from Hawaii, put together a counterweight to all these NCAA-friendly bills, which offered the athletes virtually nothing in terms of name, image, and likeness benefits, but gave the NCAA and Power Five these three extraordinarily powerful federal protections and immunities. So they put together the Athletes' Bill of Rights, which focused on issues in addition to nil. And they wanted Congress to look at health and safety, very important. There was also a revenue-sharing component in the original version of the Athletes' Bill of Rights. It has since been reintroduced, and the revenue-sharing component is no longer there. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that as well. But you had these bookends, this Republican-sponsored legislation that basically granted the NCAA all these federal protections and immunities before they had any obligation to do anything on nil. Then on the other end, you had the Booker-Blumenthal bill, which at least as originally constituted, would have provided some meaningful rights for the athletes. And then as we're heading into November of 2020, a couple of really interesting things happen. First, in October, on October 15th, the NCAA appeals the Austin case from the Ninth Circuit to the U.S. Supreme Court. And for the first time, it is very clear in that litigation that the NCAA is seeking absolute antitrust immunity on the grounds that the Antitrust laws simply didn't envision restricting a non-commercial actor, an, an education nonprofit like the NCAA, from doing whatever it wanted to in its rulemaking. The NCAA had very cleverly disguised that through the Austin litigation, and they sprang this antitrust immunity in their briefing to the Supreme Court in October. And then, of course, in the November elections, we had the Senate hanging in the balance with the Georgia special elections. And if both of those seats had gone to the Democrats, then the Senate would be controlled by the Democrats. So 
heading into January of 2021, you had the NCAA just stepping back and taking a new look at their chessboard because they were facing the loss of their Republican advantage in the Senate. And then they also had this possibility that the U.S. Supreme Court might take the Austin case, which it did in early December of 2020. So heading into the January special elections, the NCAA all of a sudden is in a pretty good place, at least as to antitrust immunity, because the United States Supreme Court took the Austin case. They were going to review it. And a lot of people, including including me, who were paying close attention to Austin, assumed that the Supreme Court wouldn't have taken Austin unless it was inclined to grant antitrust immunity. So then we roll into January of 2021, and the NCAA convention is coming up, the annual convention, and they had promised voluntary rules changes on name, image, and likeness. And through the legislative process and the work of the Division I Council, they had had name, image, and likeness and transfer rule changes in the hopper for almost a year. And everybody was just waiting for this January 2021 convention. And all of a sudden, it was going to be a whole new day with respect to name, image, and likeness and transfers. And then the Georgia special elections on January 5th don't go the way the NCAA hopes. The Democrats have control of the Senate. The NCAA's congressional campaign is on life support because all of their bills are running through Republicans. And they also have this Austin case coming up. So the NCAA is in a real problem here, at least from a voluntary rulemaking standpoint, because they've been promising new rules on nil. And they've been promising that since 2019. And now on the eve of the convention, and with the rules drafted and ready to go, out of nowhere, literally out of nowhere, comes this kerfuffle between the antitrust division of the Justice Department and Mark Emmert. And a story breaks, I think it was on January 8th, saying that the Justice Department had issued a letter to Mark Emmert demanding that the NCAA stand down on voluntary rulemaking on name, image, and likeness, and transfer, because the Justice Department had antitrust concerns about both of those issues. That's how it was reported at the time. And the NCAA immediately came out with a press release saying, Justice Department demands that the NCAA cease its voluntary rulemaking. And the media picked up on that narrative, and they reinforced it through circular amplification, and it is now unchallengeable. To this day, the NCAA is saying that the reason they didn't uh, move forward on their promises of voluntary rulemaking on name, image, and likeness was because the Justice Department told them to stand down. And this is where I want to pick up with the opening montage. And this is just so important because it reveals just the brazen dishonesty of the NCAA and its reckless disregard for the truth of the historical record and the, tr- the truth of its intentions right now. During this interview, Emmert is talking about what happened on the voluntary rulemaking. And he says, nonetheless, there were a set of rules that were drafted and were put in front of the membership of the school. I said the membership, the universities, were the ones who vote on all this. And he says that that legislation was ready in December of 2019. And then they got pulled off the table in January of 21. That just mysteriously got pulled off the table, mostly because of intervention from the Justice Department. He goes on, I would have loved to have just shoved that through anyway. It would have created doubtlessly lawsuits and some other complexities, but at least we would have had a template on the table nationally. 
So what Ember's saying there is, gosh, if I had to do it all over again, I would have just said to hell with the Justice Department, full steam ahead, because it's the right thing to do, which is an outright lie. And the fact of the matter is that there's nothing stopping the NCAA. It could have changed these rules a year ago, a month ago, a week ago, or tomorrow. They have absolute control over voluntary rulemaking, and they have not done a damn thing because they never intended to do anything. They are waiting for Congress to bail them out. Then Emmert says, you know, orange is a great color, but not as a jumpsuit. And so when the DOJ says that's not a good idea, you tend to say not a good idea. And then Dosh asks the, the logical question, and she says, what was the DOJ's major concern there? And Emmert says that they were antitrust concerns. They were concerned that uh, restricting behavior on campuses from doing what they would otherwise be allowed to do restricts competition. And the DOJ at that time, they looked at a, a lot of things around college sports over the years, over the decades. And at that time, they said, we're concerned about the transfer rules because they thought the transfer rules were too restrictive potentially. And they said, we're concerned about whatever it is you're doing around name, image, and likeness. And Emmert goes on and says, you know, at this time, we really don't have anything on the table. It's just a conversation. But they, the Justice Department, said, whatever you do, we want to know about it. We want to be involved. And then Emmert goes on to say, yeah, and that's what slammed the brakes on. They didn't launch an investigation that we're aware of. They didn't weigh in in the end. But they wanted to basically oversee it. And this explanation for why the NCAA didn't make good on its promise for voluntary rules changes on NIL is identical to what it said in January of 2021 and what it has said consistently since then. The NCAA hasn't changed its position, and this narrative just gets regurgitated in the media again and again and again into 2020. Two. So as of September of 2022, Mark Emmert's saying, look, I was afraid that I was going to be thrown in jail. They were going to put me in an orange jumpsuit if I didn't do what the uh, antitrust division told me to do, which was to stand down on transfers and nil because there were antitrust concerns. Now, the next quote is from Macon Del Harim, who during this relevant time frame was the head of of the Justice Department's antitrust division. He uh, gave an interview to Karen Weaver's podcast. It's uh, called Trustees and Presidents. And this was on, let's see, June 24th of 2021, just a couple of days after Austin came out. And I will link to this podcast episode and also to this interview last week in the show notes on my podcast website, bigamateurism.com. I don't think it'll come up on the third party podcast directories, but I really like uh, Dr. Weaver's podcast. I've listened to a lot of it. I've talked about it a little bit. She wanted to talk about the impact of Austin, so she had uh, Mr. Del Harim on, and then Ramogi Huma, who was head of the National College Players Association, and he was involved in the California law, SB 206, and he's been an advocate for athletes. And Mr. Del Harim, I think, wanted to correct the record on what happened in January of 2021. Remember, this comes from a high-level Department of Justice lawyer who's head of the antitrust division. And what he said 
in June of 2021 is exactly what I wrote about in January of 2021 when this ridiculous story broke in January about the NCAA stopping its voluntary rulemaking because of pressure from the Justice Department. It had red flags all over it. The red flags had red flags. And I wrote a detailed post on this saying, this simply doesn't add up. And I opined at the time, this is six months before Delha Reem's interview, the true motivation here was that the NCAA lost control of Congress. They lost its Republican advantage in Congress, and they also had the Austin suit teed up. So they just, yeah, they slammed on the brakes, as Mark Emmert said, but it didn't have a damn thing to do with pressure from the Justice Department. It was because the NCAA had to adapt to changing circumstances in their monomaniacal war against revenue-producing athletes. So they backed off in Congress, they thought they had this antitrust immunity thing lined up. And that would have been huge. If the NCAA had gotten antitrust immunity in Austin, man, that, that's a game changer. So the NCAA is like, okay, we're going to step back here. But they had to come up with some plausible justification for stopping voluntary rulemaking. So here's how Del Harim describes the very same time frame that Mark Emmert just talked about. And he said, and it reminds me of what was that in December or January when they had a meeting to adopt the transfer rules and name, image, and likeness rules. They were going a certain direction. And this is a matter of public record now. And I had written a letter to Dr. Emmert, you know, the antitrust division. And I'm concerned about some of the changes you guys are making. I want to make sure they're consistent with the antitrust laws. That was it. And the transfer rules, quite frankly, were long over. Do. And Delharim says that they were offensive restrictions. These transfer rules were offensive and they shouldn't exist. And then Delharim says, but they, the NCAA, delayed it, meaning these transfer rule changes and the name, image, and likeness changes. They delayed it because of the Justice Department's concerns. And he said it just wasn't true. They were planning on delaying it because the Supreme Court granted cert on the Austin case. So they thought they were going to get a shot, a free shot into the goal to get some kind of antitrust immunity. And therefore, they don't have to make any changes on nil. And Delarim says, I think they miscalculated. And he said, I don't think that shows leadership to do the right thing. And they needed to do the right thing. And then he says, I hope they go ahead and do that rather than continue to flush money down the toilet defending these indefensible limits on athletes' rights. That's basically what Del Harim was saying. And it's so important to point out that when Mark Emmert is talking about the antitrust division, he's talking about Mr. Del Harim because Mr. Del Harim was the one who was personally in communication with Mark Emmert as the president of the NCAA on this very issue. So here you have this coming from the horse's mouth that the NCAA NCAA and Mark Emmert were lying about the reasons that they stopped their voluntary rulemaking on name, image, and likeness. And the true reason was that they were seeking an antitrust immunity in the United States Supreme Court that, if granted, would have given them the protection and immunity to do nothing on name, image, and likeness. Del Harim says that outright. And the reason that is so important is that's exactly what the NCAA was doing in Congress. They went in on a Trojan horse 
named Nil, and they were going to use that Trojan horse to get protections and immunities that, if granted, would have allowed them to do nothing on Nil. Del-Harim nails it on the judicial side in, in the NCAA's quest for judicial antitrust immunity, but they were doing the same damn thing in Congress. And I just want to speak to something else that Mr. Del-Harim said that is so, so important, and that is without any uh, hesitation, he said, yes, the NCAA was seeking absolute antitrust immunity in Austin. Anybody paying attention to that case who had any understanding of the issues and how the NCAA rolled up those issues to the U.S. Supreme Court knew that's precisely why the NCAA appealed the case and precisely how they argued the case in the Supreme Court. And remember, this is one of the top-ranking antitrust lawyers in the Justice Department. He knows what he's talking about. But throughout the Austin litigation, particularly when it landed in the Supreme Court, the NCAA and their lawyers and their lobbyists and their public relations spin doctors went on a massive gaslighting campaign to shout down anyone who dared state the obvious, that the NCAA was indeed seeking absolute antitrust immunity. And if they had gotten what they wanted from the Supreme Court, it wouldn't have been a degree of antitrust immunity. It would not have been limited antitrust immunity. It was all or nothing, and they were going for all, and they thought they were going to get it. And that's precisely what Mr. Del Harim said. And I've talked about this in other episodes. And when the athletes' lawyers in the U.S. Supreme Court pointed out at the very beginning of their briefing that the NCAA was seeking antitrust immunity, the NCAA's lawyers in their briefs in response said very clearly and very aggressively, no, that is not what we are seeking. And the athletes don't know what the hell they're talking about. Seth Waxman, the NCAA's lawyers, said the same thing to the United States Supreme Court in a much more polite way during oral argument on March 31st of 2021. And then, most importantly, perhaps, on June 9th, 2021, when the NCAA went on their knees to the Senate Commerce Committee to beg for last-minute preemption before these state nil laws went into effect on July 1st, Mike Lee, a Republican from Utah who concentrates in antitrust issues, asked Emmert a question about the antitrust issue. And the way he framed the question, it suggested and implied that the NCAA was indeed seeking absolute antitrust immunity, which anybody who was paying attention believed to be the case. And that was true both in Congress and also in, in the Supreme Court. And in response to that question, Emmert corrected Lee and very aggressively and vociferously and confidently said, I would just want to make clear that we're not seeking absolute ab- antitrust immunity. Nobody I know is seeking absolute antitrust immunity. And this is on June 9th, and just 12 days later, a unanimous Supreme Court issues an opinion in the Austin case, which was based around the central legal question of whether the NCAA was entitled to absolute antitrust immunity. That statement to Lee, Emmert is just in and out of that, it's just taken as gospel. And that's part of the public record. And, you know, I don't know what the standard is these days for misleading Congress. Maybe that's impossible now. And when you listen to all the garbage that the NCAA and the Power Five served up in their congressional campaign in 2020 and 2021, it's just really heartbreaking to see how easy it is for them to just offer these patently false and misleading narratives, but more importantly, patently false statements, just like the one that Mark Emmert made. And he gets away with it. And one of the reasons he gets away 
away with it is that he's got the best lawyers, lobbyists, and public relations people on the planet doing his bidding behind the scenes and laying the groundwork and the framework for sitting behind a microphone in the United States Senate and serving up patently false narratives and statements. And then close out the montage section with a couple of quotes from Marsha Blackburn, a Republican senator from Tennessee who should be the NCAA's best friend. These Republican senators who represent power five states are gold for the NCAA. They were in 2020. They are in 2022. And, you know, Blackburn just says out loud what a lot of people have been thinking for a long time. That first quote about her frustration And she says, we want you to get this right. Fair, consistent, transparent, Mr. Emmert. You say that's your priorities. But I have to tell you, I was really disappointed with our meeting last week. And I just, I love the way that Blackburn talks. She has that Tennessee accent. With our meeting last week, Emmert pissed her off. And it was very clear that she wasn't going to be very friendly to NCAA interests as long as Mark Emmert was sitting in the captain's chair. So that was in February of 2020 when she made that comment. Then on June 9th of 20. 2021, when the NCAA came in on the eve of the state name, image, and likeness law set to go into effect on July 1st of 2021, and they were begging for preemption. That was a preemption-only hearing, and there was Emmert doing his usual NCAA two-step and serving up all his BS, and I think Blackburn had just had enough. And she said, don't you think it's time to call your leadership of the organization into question? Do you think you're still capable and fit to lead this organization to make a decision that's going to be fair to the student athletes and their parents? She is just saying, get rid of this guy. And I don't think it's coincidental that when Mark Emmert announced his resignation, it was soon thereafter that the Pac-12 Conference Commissioner George Klyvkov and the SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey returned to Capitol Hill to meet with Maria Cantwell, who is the chair of the Senate Commerce Committee, very powerful committee, because they have frontline jurisdiction over sports issues. And all these hearings really ran through commerce. She's a Democrat from Washington, and she had been open to some compromise. So they meet with her. They also meet with Marsha Blackburn. And after those meetings, Blackburn came out and said, yeah, I think that things are looking uh, better now that we have new leadership on the way or something like that. It was very clear that she was saying, thank God. that this guy's off the table. And I wouldn't be surprised if that wasn't a motivating factor in getting Emmert, just get him the hell out of the way. Because you can't be pissing off people like Marsha Blackburn if you're the NCAA and the Power Five. So now let me transition into this interview. And that setup was necessary to put into context the NCAA's true motives right now, the Power Five's true motives, and what I believe Mark Emmert's true motive was. I don't believe for a minute that he went rogue here and he just decided he was going to speak out on this stuff outside of the NCAA's propaganda campaign in Congress and in in its public relations campaign. He still wants to get paid his $2.7 million salary and remains to be seen if he's going to get a golden parachute like prior NCAA executives have gotten when they left. We'll be paying close attention to that as the Form 990 tax returns roll in. But the NCAA right now, Mark Emmert in this interview, he's using the same playbook that they used in 2019, and that is to put out some bogus shiny object as a new Trojan horse, because your old arguments are dead. This argument 
that the name, image, and likeness market in 2019, 2020, if it came into existence without federal regulation, it was going to be the death of college sports. And that's what they were saying. The work product of the federal and state legislation working group in their final report on, I think it was April 17th of 2020, they said outright, we absolutely need these three federal protections and immunities as a precondition to the existence of any name, image, and likeness marketplace. And if we don't get it, college sports will come to a fatal collapse. And then you had NCAA-friendly witnesses in all these hearings in 2020 spouting that same garbage. Now you have these beautiful free market forces just ripping right through Mark Emmert's ridiculous interim policy. And guess what? The games go on. The games go on. And business is booming. The Power Five just can't rake in enough money. The contract money's falling from the sky. I don't think the Big Ten and the SEC are going to be able to find ways to spend all that money. No, I take that back. They sure will. But it's not going to be on the athletes. So if anything, this name, image, and likeness market, if you're looking at just correlation, not causation, the correlation is that this name, image, and likeness market is rolling along the same track as the extraordinary riches that the Power Five conferences are realizing right now in their broadcast media deals. And of course, the expansion of the CFP. So you have to come up with something new. And so there are two sides to the NCAA playbook right now. One is, what is the boogeyman? Or the boogeyman. They have two now. One is this out of control name, image, and likeness market and these collectives. And this is just turning into outright pay for play and inducements. And we've just lost control of college sports. And then transfer has resurrected itself. So, oh no, this transfer market, this transfer portal. I talked about that in the last episode through this Wall Street Journal article and the frenzy, the transfer frenzy. But you have these new boogeymen that I don't think are that potent, quite frankly. And that's the kind of garbage that we heard from Joe Manchin and Tommy Toberville in that joint letter they sent out about the skies falling and they're supposedly putting together some new legislation. But those boogeymen will work just fine if the Republicans regain control of the Senate. It looks like they are going to take the House. I mean, the Senate's kind of a question mark right now. I'll talk more about all the politics behind this because it's interesting. But, you know, you're in the funhouse. You're in the political funhouse. There's no telling how this is going to all play out. But that's what the NCAA is positioning for. And remember, and this is so important, and Mark Emmert does not acknowledge this in this interview. He, he actually sidesteps this. And I think this was purposeful. He makes it sound like Congress just appeared and expressed some interest, and they want to make sure that everybody's taken care of here in this college sports marketplace. No, the NCAA went to Congress. The NCAA got on its knees in February of 2020, the very first hearing on February 11th in a subcommittee of commerce. They said, and Mark Emmer said explicitly, we need your help. And they went believing that they were just going to steamroll the Republican-controlled Congress, and they should have, but, you know, I think Mark Emmert was the, their worst enemy. So, you know, if, if they get the Republicans back in control, they don't need much of a pretext to, to get all these protections and immunities, and they're just going to get them. But the other side of that playbook is, what's your new justification? What's your new shiny object? And I have been saying for a long, long time that the NCAA was going to have to come up with something that is not name, image, and likeness compensation to re-energize a discussion in Congress. And I think we're starting to see some of the contours in that. And just a couple days ago, on September 14th, Roger Wicker, Republican from Mississippi, reintroduced 
the legislation he first introduced in December of 2020, and it has some new shiny objects in it. It's not what Mark Emmert was talking about in this interview, which I'm going to get to in a second, but Wicker re-releases this bill, and all you need to know about that bill is that it has the three federal protections and immunities that the NCAA and the Power Five desperately need to crush the athletes' rights movement. Everything else in that bill is irrelevant, and that's really the way to judge these bills, these Republican NCAA-friendly bills. If those three things are in the bill, then it's game, set, match for the NCAA and the Power Five and the athletes' rights movement is over. So I was thinking maybe the Power Five are going to get smart here and try to come up with some form of collective bargaining light in their re-engagement with Congress, assuming that the Democrats retain control of the Senate. And that's looking likely, according to most experts right now. So how do you deal with that outcome in the midterms? Well, You either ride it out, but, you know, the longer these free market forces are in place for name, image, and likeness and transfer, the harder it's going to be for these in-system stakeholder beneficiaries to make a credible case that they are killing college sports. And there's very little evidence for that right now. So they, there's a sense of urgency here, and they're trying to look at the chessboard and look at all the potential outcomes. But if they're looking at a Democrat-controlled Senate, they're going to have to give something that looks a lot more like the Athletes' Bill of Rights than anything that's come from the Republican side. And I think the gap's closed a little bit, in part because Cory Booker just folded the tent on the revenue-sharing component of the Athletes' Bill of Rights. And you've got this new Wicker bill, and then, of course, you have the Moran bill that came out in February of 2021 that tried to put in some features of the Athletes' Bill of Rights that really had no value, that had no teeth. But his bill included the three protections and immunities that the NCAA and Power Five absolutely need. But at least on on the face of it, it appears like there may be some movement from both ends of the extreme. But what Emmert put on the table in this interview was... Something that he called the brand ambassador. To make the case for this brand ambassador, Emmert had to acknowledge that these athletes, particularly the revenue-producing athletes, actually have value, independent of their association with their universities, that they enhance the overall branding of the university, that they have enormous institutional value, and that the value added, the added value to the overall university product in its expression of the institution to the outside world needs to be recognized. And he tried to roll it up as some form of nil value. It really was incoherent on that point, and the details were really all over the map. But the fundamental premise is that these athletes suddenly, out of the blue, have actual brand value that is a direct and substantial benefit to the institutions. NCAA has been denying that fundamental reality for decades. And when you go back and you look at some of the initial opposition to any form of compensation for athletes, it's built around this false belief, this false narrative that the athletes, I'm talking about the revenue-producing athletes here, that's all that really matters. The revenue-producing athletes have no value, no brand value, no name, image, and likeness value independent of their association with the institutions. And that's such an important point in terms of the U-turn that Emmert is doing here. (laughs) It's a huge U-turn. But 
back in, I think this was late 2019, it may have been very early of 2020, the NCAA put together a slideshow, and I don't think they meant to put this on their website. I was paying real close attention to what was happening then, and I was pulling stuff off of the website. And it's titled, it has an NCAA logo, it says Division One Process and Timeline. It's talking about the work on name, image, and likeness, and the various working groups that were looking at it. But this was really a cheat sheet. This was a talking point slideshow where in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and spokespeople could be reading from the same page. And one of the main points that they wanted to make clear is that you really have two ends of the spectrum. The permissible end of the spectrum were these Mickey Mouse, kitty pool, name, image, and likeness sort of social media things that had nothing to do with sports, had nothing to do with an athlete's notoriety as an athlete or their performance or their skill or ability. And that was okay. On the other end of the spectrum were these nil uses that related directly to the athlete's identity as an athlete, his notoriety as an athlete, his skill and performance. And on that end of the spectrum, here is what the NCAA says. The working group believes that the commercial value of a student athlete's name, image, or likeness may be derived largely through that student athlete's association with his or her school and or participation in NCAA athletics. And in many cases, allowing student athletes to be paid for the right to use their name, image, and likeness in these circumstances could be tantamount to allowing compensation for athletic participation. Without mitigation, these activities will be inconsistent consistent with the collegiate model. That is a foundational false narrative that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have used for a long, long time to delegitimize the true value of these athletes to the institution. So in this interview, Mark Emmert is saying, no, that's not the way it works. I'm going to pull some language from that. I've talked about that Bob Costas interview with, not interview, his participation in a forum at the Drake Group earlier this year. I think it was in May. And he went off on a little rant about that. And he says, and I think even among reformers, there's a fundamental mistake when we say that the athletes are generating all the revenue and that's part of the exploitation. The truth is that the revenue and the attention is largely generated by the traditions and the institutions themselves. And he goes on and on. But there has been a concerted effort over the years to deny that these revenue-producing athletes have any true value to the institution and the institution's brand. And now all of a sudden, Mark Emmert is pulling that brand ambassador rabbit out of his hat. And so, you know, that's the shiny object. The flip side of that is dealing with all of the boogeymen. And in the context of Emmert's brand ambassador rollout, it is the out-of-control nil market, the unsustainable patchwork of name, image, and likeness for regulation, the employee issue. These athletes can't be employees. And part of his brand ambassador formula is that these athletes cannot be employees. They're just getting some nil revenue to acknowledge the value of their contribution to the university's brand. So what I want to do here is just hit the high points of how this interview played out when it came to dealing with the boogeymen. So let's first talk about this nil regulation. I guess I should also say that in reframing 
this re-engagement with Congress. This interview was all about getting Congress involved. And so we had all this splashing around in the water on this brand ambassador thing. But I was struck by some of the things that were mentioned as often as they were, and then importantly, some of the things that weren't mentioned. So let me just go through that list real quick. So it was Congress, 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 Congress. We've heard that so many times. I did an episode on that after Mark Emmert's presser on March 31st of 2022 before the final four. And it was Congress, Congress, Congress. That's all we hear. And there were various iterations of that. He talked about the patchwork and in the context of name, image, and likeness laws, the state laws and the different state laws. And we need a national solution and we need federal limits. Those were the talking points and they were just everywhere in this interview. But guess what we didn't see? We didn't see the word preemption mentioned. It was, we just need to get Congress's help. Congress needs to help here. There was very little discussion about the interim policy and the impact that that has had on regulation at the state level and at the university level. And the most curious omission to me is that the word amateur doesn't appear anywhere in this transcript. The word amateur has just been flushed down the memory hole, along with a lot of other things. <laughs> and the collegiate model, we don't get a, even a cameo from the collegiate model or amateur. And that's not coincidental. And we had very few references to education. And there's another important omission. There's zero reference to the fact that the NCAA and Power Five have lobbyists who have been working around the clock since 2019-2020 to crush the athletes' rights movement. It's just Mark Emmert just going to Congress. Mark Emmert goes to Washington. No, the NCAA has paid this prestigious, expensive lobbying firm, one of the best in D.C., millions of dollars. And that relationship goes back to 2014. And boy, did it kick in earnest in 2019, 2020, when the NCAA went on offense. But no reference to that. It doesn't exist. How can you talk about congressional intervention and not talk about what you're lobbying for? What bills are you supporting? What bills are you opposing? Why do you support the bills you support? Why do you oppose the bills that you oppose? And when Mark Emmert talks about the state of congressional intervention, he does it in very broad strokes and tries to paint the picture that there's good legislation and good senators and bad legislation and bad senators. And he talks about the Booker Blumenthal bill as really just holding up this process. And they were asking for a bunch of things that they really didn't need to be asking for. And that stood in contrast to the good bills that are name, image, and likeness only bills. But nowhere in that discussion does Mark Emmert say what's in the Republican-sponsored NCAA-friendly name, image, and likeness bills. Not a word about what they offer in terms of benefits, but more importantly, what their limitations are. And the reason he can't talk about that is that the NCAA and the Power Five have made it a full-time job to avoid saying the words preemption, antitrust immunity, and athletes can't be employees. And the media has played right along. You do not hear anyone in the media writing about or talking about those three things as a package. And nobody, nobody's talking about the no employee provision. And that's one of the most important provisions on the table right now. Why is that? Because the NCAA has absolute control over the narrative. So let me first deal with this first boogeyman, and that is the NIL regulation, the state of name, image, and likeness regulation. 
And that operates at three levels. The, at the national level, it runs through the NCAA, and it's in fractions and enforcement process. And then at the state level, through these state name, image, and likeness laws in states that have them. And then we have this interim policy, and then we have regulation at the institutional level. And uh, Emmert went to great lengths to talk about this whole patchwork thing and how it's an existential threat. It sure, sure sounded to me like Ms. Dosh supported that talking point that Emmert made and that, gosh, we've got these laws all over the place and it's unsustainable and what are we going to do? I would just say that in response to that, there was zero discussion about the fact that states with some of the most restrictive name, image, and likeness laws with all the guardrails that the NCAA wanted from the very beginning have either repealed or suspended or substantially amended their state name, image, and likeness laws to make them all more permissive to align more with this interim policy. And I don't know how you talk about this and not talk about Alabama and South Carolina. Alabama had probably the most restrictive law in the country, and it just outright repealed it when it saw it was losing ground in the competitive advantage-disadvantage game in the talent acquisition market, potentially. Hard to imagine Nick Saban being at a disadvantage in that market, but he's sure been vocal on this. And uh, he was all on board, apparently, with the state of Alabama repealing the law almost immediately after passing it. South Carolina also had a very restrictive law. They have suspended that law for a year. And there's some really interesting stuff going on kind of in-house at the University of South Carolina that looks pretty innovative. And then I think Illinois, Tennessee, you have a lot of states that are moving towards the same approach. So the field is becoming more level, at least on paper. And that's important. I'm going to get to the enforcement issue in just a second. But just as an example, Ms. Dosh said that Florida had one of the most restrictive laws on the books. And technically, I guess that's true when you compare it now to these other laws. And I also note that Florida has had some pending legislation to amend that law, didn't make it through in 2022. But she's talking about that. And then she's also talking about the fact that there are collectives in Florida, and that the Florida quarterback has a deal where he gets new cars whenever he wants it. And the University of Miami, which has become the poster school for out of control nil, and if they, if you have this great law, this restrictive law, then how the hell is Miami getting away with that? And the the answer is that regardless of what the rules are at the voluntary regulatory level, at the national level with the NCAA, whether it's at the state level through whatever state enforcement mechanisms exist or don't exist. <laughs> Some of these bills don't even say how they're going to be enforced. And then at the institutional level, you have self-reporting and self-policing. <laughs> None of those forms of regulation have been worth the paper that they are written on because they haven't been enforced. And the NCAA has outright refused to enforce its own rules. And there's no reason why they can't. I'm not aware of a single state that has taken a single action under these name, image, and likeness laws to enforce any of its provisions. And I'll just say this. The state legislatures are in the pockets of these big-time football programs, and these laws change on a dime at the whim of the football interests and the perception on a competitive advantage, disadvantage. And at the institutional level, not only are these rules, whatever they are, not being enforced, they are working double time to find ways to innovate in this less restrictive market. And so the question I have is, what the hell makes you think that a bill from Congress that federalizes the name, image, and likeness law is going to result in a more efficient enforcement process? 
It's ridiculous on its face. I don't think these people care about enforcement. But if they get preemption, they eliminate states as external regulators. And then states can't be involved in the name, image, and likeness market. They also couldn't be involved theoretically in a revenue sharing bill like the California bill that got slapped down or in any state laws or regulations that would try to give these revenue producing athletes employee status. So you eliminate all those state level boogeymen with preemption and whatever market exists, if the federal government comes in and federalizes the name image likeness market, we'll see how it settles out. But I think this is more about just eliminating states as potential external regulators. So to get to the brand ambassador shiny object, you've got to deal with state regulation and, and name image and likeness. And then you also have to deal with the employee issue because a component of this brand ambassador is that athletes can't be employees. And it was just the same old tired talking points. And boy, it's too hard. It's like curing cancer. I don't know how we're going to figure this thing out. Forget the fact that there are 165 million employees in the United States of America in all kinds of capacities with all kinds of distinctions drawn at the very institutions that the NCAA represents. And they have no trouble distinguishing between the value of an orthopedic surgeon and a floor nurse or a university chancellor and a student activities coordinator. That's just the way it works. But boy, we can't do that when it comes to athletes. It's just too hard. Or as Emmer put it, bloody complicated. It's just bloody complicated. And one of the canards he trotted out is that he says, there's no differentiation in employment law between revenue producing sports and low revenue producing sports. And again, that's just a red herring because there could very easily be differentiation. It's just that nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to explore it. It's all no, no, no. And I've talked about that in prior episodes. That's The firewall is, it's too, it's too tough. And he brings in, well, if they can be hired as employees, they can be fired as employees. What about taxes? And he uses some absurd example there. And then he says that wouldn't have Title IX. When these women become employees, then they uh, don't have the protection of Title IX. I, I want to, I don't know, I'd like to hear our Title IX experts weigh in on that. That he even invoked age discrimination laws. And I'm not an employment lawyer, but my understanding is that age discrimination laws don't kick in until you're 40 years old. And it's to protect older workers, I believe. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but I'm not aware of any over 40-year-old athletes. And he says presidents would say no mas. And then they get into the Northwestern case and say it's impossible and point out the limitations of Northwestern and have this public-private distinction, the NLRB, which the Northwestern case was in, which went to work conditions and unionization. That was what the Northwestern case was about. That law applies to private entities and there aren't many private schools in the Power Five. There are only like 12, I think. For the remaining 53 under state law, they'll be governed by their state law. and But again, there's no reference to how that could be solved. And the fact that in these NLRB charges that really were at the invitation of Jennifer Abruzzo, the NLRB's general counsel, who said that classifying athletes as non-employees is an independent violation of the NLRB because they are employees by any reasonable standard. And the, at the fact-finding level, the Northwestern Regional Director said yes, and it wasn't even close. Yes, they're employees. When you look at what they actually do, not what the NCAA wants to call them. So there was no discussion about those charges 
and then no discussion about the joint employer issue. And in those charges to try to get athletes recognized as employees, one on the football side, one on the basketball side. And then also in this Johnson case in the, in the Third Circuit, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, you have those claimants saying that the NCAA, because of its control over the work conditions and the work circumstances through its regulation is a joint employer with the universities. And that solves or at least mitigates this public-private problem that you've got with the NCAA membership because the NCAA as an entity is being held responsible as an employer. And that's an important issue. And the district court in that Johnson case said, yes, the NCAA is a joint employer when you look at the extent of control it exercises over the work conditions of these athletes through its Byzantine rules. And that it remains to be seen if the NLRB is going to view it that way. But I will say this, just a couple of days ago, I read that the NLRB has put out for public notice and comment a new interpretation of joint employer that would make it easier for putative employees to make the joint employer case. That's really important. These are important issues. The other thing they don't talk about is the Murphy-Sanders bill. And that bill is designed to solve all of these problems that the NCAA always throws up as roadblocks. And it would solve the public-private issue, the joint employer issue. And these athletes would be deemed employees. Congress can do whatever the hell it wants to do. And it could put together, Congress could put together something like the Murphy-Sanders bill that grants athletes protectable federal rights as employees and then would allow them to engage in collective bargaining. And that is the NCAA and Power Five's worst nightmare. And I'm not criticizing DOS for not asking because, again, Emmert was just all over the map. And I think there were a couple of times where Ms. Dosh tried to kind of reel Emmert back in. And one was when he was talking about the ambassador salary caps that could be put in place at the conference level. And Ms. Dosh came back around and said, there are some antitrust implications there. And then when they were talking about the employee issue, Ms. Dosh pointed out that if the NCAA or the conferences engaged in formal collective bargaining under the NLRA, then they would get their antitrust immunity. Because when you engage in collective bargaining, you get a non-statutory antitrust exemption. But Emmert didn't really respond to that. So Emmer leads into this. His windup is about the need for congressional involvement and how engaged he's been and what's been happening in Congress. And so Dosh asks him, what would you want in a bill? And he says, well, there have been a number of bills being reintroduced, probably this congressional session, which ends in January. That comment's not coincidental. So that was on September 9th. Five days later, we have Roger Wicker releasing his bill. He doesn't mention that outright because that would be a tell that he knew what was going on behind the scenes through his lobbyists. But Emmert and Wicker are in communication. The NCAA and Wicker and all their lobbyists are working together behind the scenes, around the clock. And then he says it's unlikely that anything's going to pass before January. And so we're, we're looking to the next congressional cycle. And he said, I would like to see the association be much more aggressive in bringing forward some new models on how NIL could work to benefit students. What is a new model? What he's saying there is that we need a new shiny object. We need a new Trojan horse, and he is going to offer it up in the form of the brand ambassador. 
And then he says, look, sports team and the athletics programs are the front porch of the university. And then he knocks off without attribution from Henry Pritchett, who wrote the preface to the Carnegie Report in 1929, and then Miles Brandon, his 2001 National Press Club speech about the fact that the winner of the Nobel Prize would get only a passing parade wave, but a prize athlete or a winning team gets coverage round the clock. And is that the way it should be? Who knows? But Mark Emmett says, well, look, that's just the reality. He says, that's just the reality of the world. And then he talks about how he has embraced that reality at his prior posts in academia as university presidents at LSU when he made Nick Saban the highest paid coach in the country and where he was the highest paid university president in the country. He doesn't mention that. And then on to the University of Washington where he elevated the football program and remained the highest paid university president in the country. So boy, he understands this dynamic and he's not afraid to put it out there, even if it ruffles some feathers among the faculty crowd. And he said, so if part of the marketing model for a university or college is the athletic department, why not figure out how to reward the students relative to that contribution to the marketing model? And so he says, I would love to be able to put that in front of Congress. And then he lays out the basic contours and he says the athletes would not be employees. They would just be able to participate in some revenue that the university gets because of their value as brand ambassadors with the real world recognition that they provide enormous value. And then he tosses some numbers out there and says maybe the SEC could offer $2 million. And then if the Big Ten wanted to come in and offer $3 million, that would be okay because we're moving this down to the conference and individual institutional level where there would be fewer antitrust concerns. And then in the Q&A, he says some interesting stuff. There was a question about under this brand ambassador formula, would this other nil activity still be permissible? You know, the collectives and then athletes doing individual deals. And so Emmert says, I'm really serious about this brand ambassador model I'm talking about. I think especially with the size of the media contracts that are being created right now, there needs to be recognition of the brand building value for the school itself of the athletes. And so finding a way to provide money to athletes, not as employees, but as brand ambassadors that are geared to the marketing power of individual sports. And he says, I really think a model like that would be very successful and very well received by athletes, but maybe not the universities. And then Emmert says, but I think it works. I think it could work. I think that would be very important. And I would hope that in five years, less than five years, we've not got identical outcomes because the outcomes are going to be market-driven, but identical opportunities across sports and genders. And then importantly, he said that the vast majority of that money is going to go to men. Most of that's going to come from football and basketball. And he said, that's always going to be the case because of their market power. But let's make sure there's opportunities to take advantage. So that's just breathtaking because when talking about employees, Emmert said, we can't differentiate because it would be unfair for the football men's basketball players to get paid and recognized as employees. Then we're going to have to recognize all these non-revenue athletes as employees. And what about gender equity and, and all this stuff? We can't differentiate. What he's saying with his brand ambassador model is that, of course, we're going to differentiate because it's only the right thing to do because the football men's basketball players make the bulk of the revenue and they provide the bulk of the branding value. Because quite frankly, nobody's watching water polo and fencing 
fencing. They're watching football and men's basketball, and then some other sports are popular too. But that recognition is just flies in the face of the NCAA's decades-long propaganda that these revenue-producing sports and athletes really have no independent value to the institutions, and that we can't do anything to recognize their unique market value because then it would be unfair to the rest of the athletes who generate no revenue. I'm not even sure how to respond to that. You, you give Emmert a microphone and some time, and this is the kind of stuff you're going to get. So I just want to make a couple of observations about what this boils down to, what this brand ambassador shiny object boils down to. First of all, it is outright pay for play because under this model, the check that's written to these athletes, these brand ambassadors, is going to be written either by a conference or by an individual institution. That is a direct payment from the institution to the athlete. And that is the line in the sand the NCAA has been drawing and defending going back to the 1950s. And even with this ridiculous interim policy, and a lot of people forget what that interim policy is about. And it was a last minute dump. The NCAA and Mark Emmert ran out of options because of what happened in the summer of 2021. They didn't get what they wanted from Congress. You had the Austin suit. They didn't have the guts to file a dormant commerce clause lawsuit. And so at the very last minute, Mark Emmert dumps all his nil garbage at the feet of the institutions and says, this is an interim policy until one of two things happens. Either the NCAA changes its rules, makes voluntary rules changes to bylaw 12.5 on name, image, and likeness, which hasn't happened and is never going to happen. And Mark Emmert knew that and the NCAA knew that. Or two, we get a bailout from Congress. So this interim policy wasn't a rules change. It was just a placeholder until one of those two things happened. And the two central limitations contained in that interim policy were one, athletes can't be paid by their member institutions. Amateurism, amateurism, amateurism. They don't use that word, but that's what they mean. The second is no recruiting inducement. Those are the two lines in the sand. And the no payment provision also is a no employee provision because you can't be an employee if you don't get paid. So this brand ambassador concept just tosses that out the window in terms of direct payments from the institutions. This is pay for play without the athletes being deemed employees. I mean, it's ridiculous when you look at it through that lens and through the limitations imposed by that interim policy. And I also want to say in that regard that the NCAA's briefing in this Johnson case under the Fair Labor Standards Act that's pending right now in the Third Circuit, they said that the Austin decision actually reaffirmed the NCAA's authority to regulate, to enforce its amateurism-based compensation limits that were not related to educational benefits. So any other activity, any other compensation limits the NCAA wants to impose, they're perfectly free to do that under their reading of Austin. And they are going back to Board of Regents and pulling out all this dicta language that, that the Supreme Court in Austin actually gave a proper burial to, but they're trying to resurrect it. And that language is all built around amateurism and athletes must not be paid in the revered tradition of amateurism and all that garbage. They're still saying that to federal courts while Mark Emmert in this interview is turning that up upside down and inside out and flushing it down the memory hole. The other thing about the way he's characterized this grand ambassador is that it is based largely on free market principles and you have competition at the conference level and then at the institutional level. And my first question is, I'm listening to this is, well, why the hell do you need federal intervention? 
Why do you want to get federal control of the marketplace? And he doesn't say a damn thing about antitrust immunity, about that specific component of their quest for the Iron Throne. And that didn't come up. They're talking about preemption. I don't use the word preemption. They're talking about eliminating these state laws. But what's the purpose of your federal regulation if you are basing your brand ambassador model on a free market system? It doesn't make any sense at all. It looks to me like what Emmert is describing here is just revenue sharing. And the Power Five conferences have been openly hostile to revenue sharing. And when I say revenue sharing, I'm talking about the California bill, the Race and Gender Equity Act, and then also the first version of the Booker-Blumenthal bill, which had a revenue sharing component. But neither of those bills would have turned the athletes into employees. They adhered to that line between employee, non-employee, and they landed on the non-employee side. But the NCAA and the Power Five did everything in their power to kill both of those bills. They were successful. They got that California bill just taken off the map. And then behind the scenes, through their lawyers and lobbyists and all the pressure they've been putting on in Congress, they got Cory Booker to pull the revenue sharing component. And the reason that the California bill died and the reason that the revenue sharing component was pulled out of the Booker bill is because of gender equity concerns. And Emmert has turned that upside down with his brand ambassador formulation and saying, yeah, it's okay to make differentiations based on gender and based on sport, because that's the real world. That's the reality of the business model. So do you think Mark Emmert is now for the California bill? Does he want to go and he and his lobbyists want to go to Cory Booker and say, hey, put that revenue sharing component back in that athlete's bill of rights, because we think that's really the way to go now. (laughs) Don't hold your breath. So that's the brand ambassador issue. And it is just an empty, shiny object. But the true motivation, I think, goes back to Emmert's introduction of that issue. And it's, look, we need to be aggressive in finding a new model to benefit these athletes. And that's the Trojan horse. But we're back to the same playbook. We're using the same playbook, the same play, and we're just going to employ it in 2022 and 2023 instead of 2019 and 2020. That's it. The NCAA has no new theories here. They have no new philosophies. They are still stuck in a 1950s mentality in terms of their relationship with the revenue-producing athletes, and they're going to do everything in their power to get protections from Congress that will allow them the freedom to do nothing on athlete benefits or nothing more on athlete benefits. And that's precisely what Macon Del Harim was talking about in that opening montage when he was saying that the NCAA's motivation didn't have a damn thing to do with doing the right thing for the athletes on name, image, and likeness. It was about trying to shore up federal protections and immunities first so that they then would have the freedom to do nothing on nil. That's the true NCAA. That hasn't changed. And there's no new play in the playbook. And I want to close this out with just one more observation. When you listen to Mark Emmert and you look at the truth of how this man has led the NCAA and how poor a leader he has been, you just have to ask the question, how has he been allowed to sit in that chair for so long? And how has he been allowed to do so much damage? And this just goes back to the dysfunction in the regulatory model. And these people in decision-making seats don't want new ideas. They don't want new ways of thinking. They're just doubling down on the same bad ideas and corrupt, immoral ideas that got them to the place that they're in right now. And I'll just point out that in April of 2021, the NCAA Board of Governors unanimously voted 
to extend Mark Emmert's contract into 2025. And there have been some stories that were written about that after the fact. We never hear about this in real time. Nobody has the guts to talk about these things. The facts dribble out after the fact. But apparently, there were some members of the Board of Governors that were very distressed that that issue came up because it wasn't on the agenda. It was really kind of sprung on the Board of Governors. And that happens in bad leadership models. It's not a good thing. But there was nothing stopping any member of that Board of Governors from saying, this is not an appropriate way to bring this issue up. This is a very important issue. We are going to table this until our next meeting. We are not taking action on this at this meeting. If that happened, uh, it certainly wasn't an effective objection because that vote did occur. Every single member was present at that meeting, and the vote to extend Mark Emmert's contract was unanimous. Unanimous. That's the problem with the NCAA right now. And quite frankly, with the quote unquote new leadership, I don't see it as being any different. You've just got a different cast of characters putting out the same propaganda and they're reading from the same playbook. All right. So with that, I'm just going to close this thing out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.